And coming down the aisle, father of the bride, <laughs> at this royal wedding is Mike Sag. Mike, uh, as all of you know, uh, is a internationally recognized leader in our field, is a professor of medicine at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, um, and his specialty in the world is cases of antiretroviral therapy. And I think he'll want everyone on the panel to introduce themselves. Right. Tim, you've met. Yes. Okay. Uh, hi, I'm just, am I on here? Can you hear me? Greetings. Hello, hello. So I, I'm Turner Overton from the University of Alabama in Birmingham, and uh, I'm the clinic director and focus a lot of my research on metabolic complications of... It's Turner Overton, and he's from UAB, and he um, he's going to talk to us later. I think I'm on now. Yeah. Are we on, Wink? Uh, so I'm Turner Overton from uh, University of Alabama at Birmingham, and I uh, focus my research on metabolic complications of HIV. <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying needs Viagra. <laughs> that was Joe's comment, but it was a great comment. I stole it. My name is Doug Bruce, and I'm from Yale University and work at a federally qualified healthcare center in New Haven called Cornell Scott Hill Health Center, and I work with substance users. Yep, and Joe, we've met. So let's get started. Um, what I do in these, in these cases is, I, through the course of a year, I collect questions that I get from folks, and uh, especially those that are common and frequent, and I convert them into cases for these presentations. So you'll see that every story starts with an actual question that I create uh, clinical data behind it in some cases, most of them. And then we go to a question to everyone in the audience, the panel will discuss and we'll move on. And we got about 60 minutes on the clock, so let's get going. These are my disclosures and they are in the uh, handouts um, and in the major book. Okay, oh, right. And we're gonna talk about a whole bunch of things. These are just uh, a few of the topics. Um, and we'll get, to, there's actually some breaking data literally from this morning on the pregnancy front. So stay tuned for that. So as Joe Iron uh, said, we're gonna get to this in the cases. So what should I start as initial therapy today? So we got a 48 year old guy who shows up with HIV, newly diagnosed, he's asymptomatic, viral loads 28,000, CD4 count 650. He's HLA B5701 positive. He has wild type virus, no past medical history, normal renal function. If you think he should start, he's ready to go. So here are your choices. Uh, there's some new generic um, uh, tenofovir, FTC, or actually 3TC, and low-dose fovirins, which is 400 milligrams. Uh, we talked about two drugs in Joe's talk, so you could pick that. Um, and here are your other choices. Let's go ahead and vote. Slam on the brakes. I've learned to slam on the brake. Uh -huh. Before, Before he turns the key. Turn the key. Before he makes a mistake. Before I make the mistake. Yeah. And push the wrong Before button. Before I lead with the worst of me. Anybody know that? Give them no yeah. reason to stay. Yeah, dear Evan Hansen. Broadway no right now. Up. Great play. Let's go ahead and see what we got. All right. So a lot of folks in the 
uh, fixed dose combination BIC. Uh, 6% went for a Bacavir. Um, <laughs> the pharmacists, no, I'm not. I'm, you guys would never do that. Actually, they're the least likely to make an error. It's, it's incredible. Uh, mo very so um, I, we can just dispose of that. So you wouldn't want to use the Bacavir with the B5701 positive. They may have slipped by. Um, comments from the panel. What would you guys choose here? Tim? Um, first of all, we don't all normally have this data posture, but there's the light is really intense. So we're kind of watching over. Um, I did choose the big tag rear tap FTC. I think the lack of the booster, the lack of worrying about drug drug interactions, the simplicity, the efficacy to date, I think it's it's great. Uh rear tap FTC would have been the second, but I think people generally like one pill once a day. Does anybody want to talk about uh, the low dose of Favarin's choice? Because that is out there now. Um, Joe? Well, um, it has been studied in a large trial comparing 400 to 600 of Favarin's, again, with the TDF and FTC. Um, and it, there are fewer CNS side effects with the lower dose. Um, uh, and um, But it has the uh, baggage of a Favarin's associated with it and, and the... the um, modest risks of, of TDF. There's some pretty nice um, uh, uh, meta-analysis from Andrew Hill suggesting that really the nephrotoxicity of TDF is not really common at all if it's given without a booster. So so with the Favrins, it, it's nephrotoxicity is very uncommon. So um, it depends on how inexpensive it is and yep. whether we'll be forced to move that way. And, and the problem, so these are generics and they should be cheap, right? Cheaper. The problem is, even if their list price is 40% below name brand, we don't have a clue what the actual rebates are and what the payer's paying. And that is something that if I were getting on a soapbox, which I guess I just did, um, I would advocate that we collectively together demand that pharmaceutical pricing be transparent, that we see exactly what the acquisition costs are and what, because it affects co-pays. And there are situations where the co-pays sometimes are higher than what the acquisition costs. And, and, and you're better off just saying, forget my insurance, just give me the generic low, low ball price. But you got to ask for that, right? So these are problems that we have. But anyway, lots Mike, of great Mike, choices. can I give a shout out to the pharmacist, right? So in our clinic, we would, wouldn't use the Favrins because it upregulates CYP2B6 and increases methadone metabolism. Uh -huh. So that's going to, in our methadone clinic, put somebody into opioid withdrawal. Right. But this guy, yeah, so you're right. So there are things to consider, and uh, but the good news is we have a lot of choices. I think that's the take-home point. Now, one of the questions that you got as a pretest that the majority of people missed uh, was related to this question. The question was, um, what if within one week of starting which drug would you for sure almost every time have a 0.1 milligram percent, milligram per deciliter increase in creatinine? And the answer was Bictegravir, which would also apply to Dolutegravir, right? And a lot of other drugs because of this. We now know that a number of ways that we think, when we were taught, creatinine was cleared through the glomerulus, right? And that's why it's called creatinine clearance, and it's an estimate of GFR, glomerular filtration rate. What, at least when I was in school, wasn't known is about the secretion of creatinine from the plasma into the urine, but not a lot, but some, 
uh, that's done by these different enzymes. This is an example here with cobecystat inhibiting mate one, but there's also oct two, which is um, easy for me to remember because it's my birthday. But that's another point. <laughs> so, so oct two, oct two transports and bictegravir to a lesser degree than dolutegravir will increase uh, serum creatinine by about 0.1. And here's, here's evidence from a dolutegravir study where it went up about 0.12 or 1, 0.13, and it's immediate. The effect is right away. So the take-home point is don't freak out. If you start BIC or you start dolutegravir, you expect to see that, and there are some other drugs that do that as well, cobecystat, et cetera. All right, let's go to a second case with starting therapy. It's basically the same case, except now I've made him B5701 negative because we've already made that point. The viral load is really high, and the CD4 count is kind of low. So is that going to change what you do? That's really kind of the question here. Let's go ahead and vote. <laughs> The ten dollar founding father without a father got a lot farther by working a lot harder by being a lot smarter by being a self starter by fourteen. They placed, placed him in charge, charge of the trading, of the trading charter. charter. And, and every day while slaves were being slaughtered, okay. we only have fourteen votes. The waves, he struggled and kept his guard up. Inside, Can anybody afford to see this play? You've seen it, yeah. It's pretty good, isn't it? I'm distracting, I think, from people voting because I don't see voting. Sorry about that. Oh. Okay, we'll see what we got. All right, most people stayed. So a lot more people, of course, went with the Bacavir here because um, I, I don't know that there's that much difference, really, efficacy-wise between them. They're both fixed-dose combinations. Um, the... Um, the question I had, nobody went for dolutegravir 3TC. Joe, you want to talk to us about that? Yeah, just briefly, we just don't have any data yet with dolutegravir 3TC in high viral loads. In the ACTG study, it went up to 500,000. And even in the Gemini study and the, um, uh, the phase three studies, it, there is a limit to 500,000. So it will never have that indication. So. Uh, yeah, and I guess the other point I was trying to make here, a Favarin's at 600 would work just fine right? That, that's something that people kind of forget, that its efficacy is pretty darn good. I don't know about 400 and a high viral load. Uh, probably would work, but I, I'd be a little bit cautious to us all the little data. But those are, those are kind of the points. I wouldn't choose dolutegravir 3TC unless the viral load was really less than 100,000 or so till we get more data, and certainly not if there's an M184V present. You, that's out because of your assessments giving mostly monotherapy with dolutegravir. Yeah, Paul. So some people, more people went for the boosted PI, I think, than yeah. in the first round. And right. Do you think there's still a residual feeling that in these patients with high viral loads, low CD4, that's the better option? No, I don't. I, I think there are, there are countless data now that show that efficacy for the strand transfer integrase inhibitors is at least as good as a boosted PI and probably better in head-to-head -head studies. Doesn't matter about the viral load, tolerability is better. So I think that that's old news. And the same thing would apply to Favarin's in a way. But so this is what I, I think are the regimens we're most likely gonna use um, in the coming year. Uh, you know, you're gonna have your, your preference. We really don't have the dolutegravir 3TC data yet 
for initial therapy, but it could be emerging. Um, and then down at the bottom, you'll see Duravarine. That's the drug that'll probably be approved by uh, October or so. And uh, Joe told us a little bit about that. Uh, so good options. It's pretty cool when you think about where we've been. Notice what's not here is much in the way of boosted PI. And uh, I think, uh, and no boosted um, uh, integrase inhibitor. This is something I find fascinating. Um, these are the costs for drug acquisition for one year in Sub-Saharan Africa and in low middle income countries. And my point is really, this is great because it gets medications to a lot, a lot of people and it's making a difference around the world. I'll let you digest the other meanings in this and we'll move on. All right, so Joe talked to us about the long-acting antiretroviral formulations. This is more of a uh, uh, just an opinion piece here. If you have somebody comes in, it almost doesn't matter what the story is. The, the real question here, in your practice, realizing you're going to be doing different things for different people, which is most attractive to you when you think about your patient population? A long-acting pill formulation like the Merck uh, 8591 that very small dose that gets um, a lot of our activity that can last for weeks on end, um, or, a, sorry, that would be just one long-acting, and then a very long-acting, which would be this, uh, one I just said, or long-acting injectable that could last for two to three months. An implantable disc, where you might take a drug and formulate it, or a couple drugs and implant it, have it there for six months, maybe a year, and then could remove it and replace it in the clinic and people don't have to worry about taking or you wouldn't use them. Let's go ahead and vote. And he wrote his first refrain, a testament to his claim. Well, the word got around, he said this kid is insane, man. Took a We're picking up where we left off. Get your education, don't forget from whence you came. And the world's gonna know your name. What's your name, man? Alexander Hamilton. Okay. All right, so it's kind of all over the map. Hmm. And we'll probably have lots of different choices. Um, uh, there's a couple of drugs that can only be formulated as injectable, as you heard with ibilizumab. There are some like um, the Gilead uh, capsid inhibitor uh, that is incredibly potent, but it could only be given by either an implantable or some sort of injection. So uh, any further comments on the panel there? What do you guys think? <laughs> I think one just Mike, you've talked about this before. The the issue with long acting also is when someone misses a if they miss a dose or miss a visit, um, and the consequences of, of having a drug that that slowly seeps out into the bloodstream and into the lymphatics that might um, uh, predispose to resistance emergence. So it's, it's not necessarily a panacea for those individuals that are poorly adherent. It really has to be thought about carefully. And in the same line of thinking, there's the issue of a, in a tolerance or a toxicity. Because if you give a long-acting pill and it's in, and you can't say do over, hit reset. you got to wait for it to ride itself out. Uh, one of the questions from an audience member uh, yesterday to me uh, was about some intolerance with urticaria from a bunch of different medications. And if that was a long-acting medication, that urticaria would be around for a while. To me, that's why the implantable might be a good option because you can take it out and, and get, um, uh, get rid of toxicity. But anyway, they're good options in the long run and the tolerability will be quite good, I suspect, and the toxicity low, but 
we'll have to wait and see. All right, so this is a common question, uh, and there's a lot of variability. I've, I've given these questions to a couple other audiences, and it's interesting how people respond. So how do you counsel your patient who has undetectable HIV regarding sexual uh, transmission risk? So this is a guy um, who came in, got started on ARV therapy. Now he's on his three-month visit, and his viral load has gone to target not detected or undetectable, and a CD4 count is 390. So he's only three months in, but you're trying to, you, well, I won't, I won't bias you. Assuming he remains undetectable, you tell him that his risk of transmitting HIV to a seronegative partner via sex is, and you can read through your options here. Let's go ahead and vote. This is my theme song. Disappeared. It's from next to normal. Okay, let's see how many people don't like the question. Only four percent. That's better than usual. Okay, so um, Turner, what do you do here? How do you counsel these folks and on the U equals U front? Yeah, I mean, I think there is good data to suggest that uh, the uh, level of viral load correlates with infectivity. I mean, Tom Quinn published 80 years ago um, from Sub-Saharan Africa that illustrates people with a viral load less than 1,000 virtually don't transmit sexually. Um, so I think you can, and then the Swiss have already taken the position that there's, uh, for, a, for a, a monogamous couple, uh, when the HIV positive partner is is suppressed that there's no risk and they don't uh, say there should be any extra measures taken. You know, I like to counsel my patients that there's virtually no risk, although we can't be certain and there's always the possibility that that could happen, um, but they can feel confident uh, that, that that is the category they fall into. My bigger concern uh, when I'm counseling patients is, is to counsel not just about HIV risk, but other STIs, uh, and then their risk to acquire uh, an HIV that's potentially resistant if they have a, another partner. So, you know, I use it as a, a reinforcing technique for safe sexual behavior um, and still say there may be a role for condoms for them. Right. Tim, how's that playing out for you in New York? Um, I mean, the to me, I think it's very interesting because there seems to be uh, just it an impact on HIV stigma with the U equals U so that I think there's a broader sense in the community about the safety of sex with someone who's um, undetectable. So I think that there, between that and PrEP, there's just a lot of the, the stigma related to um, HIV infected people, at least in New York, is, in, is, is declining, which is great. Yeah. Um, it's part of a big package of safer sex, as Turner said. Right. I think all those are the, the, the points that I wanted to make. One other, I guess, is that to me, it's also empowering for the patient and it reinforces adherence behavior because they're not only doing it for their own health, they're doing it for some degree of some, some stigma reduction, internalized stigma for sure, but also the sort of feeling that they may be at risk to someone else. And that, that's reassuring that the data are now sh supporting that. And there, there are lots of campaigns now, U equals U, and the, uh, the CDC has done even focus groups and a lot of clinicians um, 
are uncomfortable saying you have zero risk, although that's a pretty clear message. Uh, so the concept of uh, virtually zero or essentially zero, some sort of qualifier that says it can't be absolute. Uh, and I think that helps us. And I, have you all found that helpful to you in your practices for the most part? Hadn't used it very much to you? Yeah, okay. Now, this is another common question that I get is if a patient has a baseline M184V, when you start to, uh, uh, for initial assessment, how do you deal with that? Um, so this is a woman who comes in newly diagnosed and she's uh, got 128,000 copies of virus and her CD4 count is 350. The other labs are normal, B5701 negative. She's got an M184V mutation, which is kind of unusual, but I made it this way just for the sake of argument. You could throw a K103N if you want to. Um, no children at this point doesn't plan to become pregnant. She's okay to start therapy if you think she should. So here are your choices. They're very similar to, in fact, identical to what we had in the first case. So give you a second. Let's go ahead and vote. Have you been writing those letters to yourself? Dear Evan, girls won't fall apart. Maybe this year we decide we're not giving up before we've tried. This year we make a new start. Hey, I know. You can go around today. Anybody and recognize this? To sign your it's the beginning of Dear Evan Hansen. Has anybody got a map? It's a great song about a mom dealing with her adolescent child. Like, how the hell do you do this? How do you raise kids who are adolescents? There's no map. Sorry. Let's go ahead and see what we got. All right. Huh, interesting. Um, a lot of folks like the Dalyotegravir 3TC in this setting. Uh, Joe, you want to comment? Yeah, I worry that we, we gave people the wrong message there. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure that's what I what we what we shouldn't do. Um, I you know Tim presented that study that I think is really interesting um, that people who are already suppressed can can appear to stay suppressed on Dalyotegravir three TC, but but I don't think any of us would really do that intentionally. No, no. <laughs> um, uh, and and if someone's viremic and 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 has a M one A four V, I wouldn't expose them to Dalyotegravir alone uh, or with the partial activity at three TC. So I think we have pretty good data on um, a boosted PI in this setting of transmitted drug resistance. And also, I think, uh, as I mentioned, the uh, uh, integrase plus TAF and FTC or, or uh, tenofovir and, and either FTC or 3TC would, would probably work very well in that setting. Um, yeah. Notice how I give the uh, negative responses to the panel anytime the audience goes in a direction that we are. So the low-dose efavirenz uh, could be a good choice here, um, assuming that you know, you go that direction, you can feel that you're going to have some cost advantage. But I think mostly integrase inhibitor up front will be the way to go. And the key thing here, we'll talk about it in another case about pregnancy. But if she were pretty certain she wanted to become pregnant, that'll be a little bit of a different twist that we'll get into in a moment. Mike? Yeah. So um, one available drug that's not been on your list is the fixed dose of dolutegavir filpivirine. Yes. And would not would that not be a reasonable? It, it, it could choice? be one to switch to, but again, I think that's one where there's no upfront data on using it. Although it could be good, um, it, it could be really good. Just got to wait and see. Those studies are underway. I think. Turner. I just want to make one comment about the dog you take of your back of your three TC. 
um, selection in that uh, there may be some resistance conferred with the M184B for a back of ear. So I, I really have concern. I mean, we see a, a lot of M184B and we discuss it with our fellows and it just makes me concerned that you have functional monotherapy and you may get one and a half drugs with the 3TC, but I worry with the M184B, you're going to knock out both 3TC and a back of ear. Yeah. Thanks for that. You're, you're right. I've meant to mention that. That's a great pickup. Okay. Now, this is an obscure, this is for the resistance mavens in the audience, and for the rest of you, I apologize, but this was a real case that came up back in February, and it was a bit of a dilemma for us in the clinic. So, the patient treatment experience shows up with an S140G, that's an integrase inhibitor mutation. So, 30-year-old guy who had originally presented with the same kind of viral load CD4 as the last guy, uh, got started on fixed-dose combination elvitegravir with TAF, and, uh, but now has regimen failure with two viral loads above 1,000. And you get sent off a genotype, and it has an M184V, but this peculiar S147G. So now what do you do? You go to dolutegravir once daily, twice daily. Do you keep them on what they're on? Um, do you switch to bigtegravir, go to raltegravir? Uh, go ahead and vote. The patient wants to stay on an integrase inhibitor. Yeah. Run away! 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 Run Run away. Y'all know that? Spam a lot. Yeah. If you watched Monty Python and the Holy Grail, the movie, and you liked it, you'll love it. You'll love this one. It's actually better than the movie. All right, let's see what we got. A lot of people didn't vote. Those who voted went with what the guidelines recommend, which is twice daily dolutegravir. Um, comments from the panel at all? Joe? Yeah, I... I I honestly had to look this mutation up, um, and yep. um, but it is a, it is a, a mutation that's seen with elvitegravir, and and at least in vitro doesn't confer any cross resistance to um, the other integrase inhibitors. So this is a um, situation where you have a patient that maybe is having trouble with some adherence, and you have to choose between the twice daily regimen um, versus knowing that dolutegravir probably once a day would work, and and. Um, there's also 184V, so so you know the FTC is not going to be fully active. So I think it's a tough choice. Um, uh, I'd be curious to know what what you decided, Mike. Yeah. So as Joe just said, you look at the guidelines. They say they don't distinguish. You just say if you've got any integrase inhibitor mutation, you're going to treat with integrase inhibitor. Dolutegravir is the go-to drug. You got to use it twice a day. It kind of takes if you're going to follow that logic, it takes bigtegravir out because it's only co-formulated with TAF FTC and you can't really double its dose easily because it's not, you can't get it individually. So dolutegravir twice a day would be the sort of standard per the HHS guidelines. However, we did look it up like Joe suggested and you'll see that it's unique to elvitegravir. And I checked with um, the folks at Gilead and they confirmed that it's not really a mutation for um, for bigtegravir either. And I think a good rule of thumb is you can sort of 
equate dolutegravir and bictegravir together. There's some subtle differences in its metabolism by bupuronidation, makes difference with metformin for dolutegravir, et cetera. But they're more or less the same in a lot of ways. But this, this mutation, this 147G, is kind of unique to elvitegravir. And so then to sort of as a tiebreaker, we went to the Stanford database, and they more or less agreed with the concept that it's a uh, non-polymorphic mutation, meaning that it can cause resistance to elvitegravir, but it does not reduce raltegravir or dolutegravir susceptibility. So what to do? Um, I was really on the fence because I was leaning towards recommending once a day. Um, and then I thought, well, maybe if we give the patient twice a day and they skip that afternoon dose, it won't matter. They would have been on once a day anyway. But the patient and the provider both said, well, you know, we kind of think once a day is okay. So we did. And so far, now we're four months out, the patients remain suppressed. So, uh, so far, so good. But the problem is, how did he get there in the first place? And it was probably because of inadherence. And our hope is that maybe there was some intolerance from the cystat that's now out of the picture. And maybe, maybe, maybe it was an intolerance that caused the inadherence. But we all know that that's kind of wishful thinking, but um, we'll just, follow. I just yeah. want to make one point about the elvitegravir. I mean, this is an example of why I don't think that people should prescribe it as initial therapy. Um, I think between that and the drug interactions that happen all the time with the boosters, I just don't see why someone would, would start with that regimen these days. That's right. And the guidelines panels uh, agree with that in the more modern iterations. Okay, another question. Seems like we're starting therapy on everyone. We just saw some data from Croy that Tim presented. What about starting it right now, immediately? Right, so you got the same guy who shows up, except this time he's in the ER, just diagnosed from a rapid test, uh, sort of confirmed with the antigen antibody test. Um, the RNA, of course, is unknown. The CD4 count, uh, B57 is unknown. Genotype is pending. Um, he's okay to start his little shell shock because he just got diagnosed. What's your timing going to be? Are you going to ideally start him right now in the ER? You're going to wait a couple days, get him right into the clinic. Yeah, sort of chillax a little bit the next two weeks within the next two to four or some other option. Go ahead and vote. It's embarrassing. Yeah, that was that was a Chicago for Chicago. Okay. Um, all right. What do you guys think, um, Dr. Volberding? Your city, your city yeah. went after this in a yeah, big way because of that. I I said number one. Um, I wouldn't do it exactly like that, uh, but we would uh, start the person that same day. Um, we would walk the person from the ER over to the HIV clinic. Uh, where he'd be consoled, we'd go through everything that you need to do, we'd get it done that day, and he'd start. So I, 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 I'm i sort of a believer in same-day starting. And and your data so far, is that working for you? Uh, yeah, I mean, you've seen some of the data. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, we, we're, we're shortening the time to, to, to well, suppress. And, yeah, know. that's true. Um, but how, what's it costing in terms of personnel and time? Don't know. I, I don't think it costs 
really anything because we have to do everything. We, right. we do all that anyway. We do all the counseling um, anyway, and right. we pro it's probably less because you have fewer clinic visits. Right. Counter points. In, um, in New York, the, at the City Department of Health testing clinics, they are starting at the clinics, and they can provide a range of ART to kind of tide someone over till they're engaged in clinic care. Right. So um, it's a it's a new model, and it's it seems. To so be your choice, required. just to help everybody out, if they choose to do that without any existing CD4 or viral load, would be like a dalutegravir, pictegravir kind of approach. Yeah. Okay. Turner. So, I mean, I think a couple things. Number one, I think we need to discriminate between, at least personally, between acute HIV and chronic HIV. I think in the acute setting, we definitely want all hands on deck and get all of these people on therapy. Those are the people who are most likely to be transmitting HIV. So I think in that setting, um, you can make the argument that, yes, I worry that the, the in chronic HIV, that the 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 short-term data looks good. My concern is the more long-term data. And by short-term, I mean one-year data. I worry that when you get out to, to two, three years, is is engagement going to really be maintained? So I, I think we need to have a, uh, a linkage happening at that visit, but I don't necessarily feel as strongly for the chronic HIV uh, individual that he or she needs to start that day. I, I think it is a life-altering experience, at least for my patients, yeah. and, and they often need a little time to process. And that it, for some patients, it feels very coercive for them to get this diagnosis and then to immediately be given uh, a pill. It's much better if they're able to process that a little bit, come back within two weeks, and initiate. Yeah, so, but I'm, I'm not sure that there's data to kind of support that at this point. I mean, in a widespread basis. So, I mean, I think it's something that definitely needs further study. I don't know that the long-term data... I mean, it seems to me that all the action is going to be soon after the yeah. diagnosis and getting to undetectable over the first six months. So I don't really know that the long-term data is going to really change that. And I, 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 it doesn't seem to me to make a lot of sense to think that, you know, if they're if they're retaining care at one year, what happened in their first two weeks of, of treatment is going to make any difference in the second or third year. I, I, I think the difference so would be seen early. So I think it's one of those things where the angels in the details, right? And what your individual situation is, then everybody knows that for themselves uh, very well. This is a story out of Atlanta, which is the suburb of Birmingham. And Atlanta, <laughs> and Atlanta um, tried this and had success on papers. You see their data, you can glance through that as I'm talking, but it, it did reduce time to suppression and all that but it exhausted their resources. And that's mostly their people who had to be available any, at any beck and call from the ERs, get over there. And I don't know what your ERs are like, but ours are pretty hectic. And we've got eight people sitting on stretchers waiting to go upstairs to a bed that doesn't exist. And you've got this chaos, right? And you're, you're trying to talk to them and it's taking more time. And the ER docs are looking at us like, what are you doing? You know, take that upstairs or get a room or whatever you want to say. But the, the, the point is, is that the point is, is that it's really tough. So, you know, your personnel, you know what you can afford, you know what it takes. And I think the spirit is what we should take away from this is that we want to get them engaged as soon as possible, because we do know the longer the distance is time-wise between diagnosis and first visit, and especially first ARV, the farther out that is, the worse the retention the linkage is. So I think the spirit is right, and the details are going to be individualized. 
Okay. I got somebody with low virus per persistently doing good. Do I change the regimen? And this is specifically related um, to this guy who's who's got this 55-year-old. Um, uh, the details of his case, I don't think, are so critical in the sense that long time ago diagnosed, um, had a high viral load at the beginning, almost a million copies. And now the HIV RNA sort of hovers between 50 and 90 or so, sometimes goes a little bit before 50. CD4 count finally has responded, been through a bunch of different regimens, but now is on dalutegravir boosted darunavir and 3TC. We don't have any historical data because it got referred to you. And the question is, should, be, should you be concerned about that low-level persistent viremia? So, would you change therapy now? Yes, no, not sure. Okay, let's see what we got. Huh. All right, so most people wouldn't, a uh, fair number sort of not sure, 22% uh, would change. Uh, Joe, would you change this person, you think? No, I, I don't think so. Um, uh, he had a very low CD4 to start and a very high viral load. Uh, we know that the viral load at baseline correlates well with the kind of number of infected cells. And I, I think he probably has a very large reservoir and, and has released a virus. I mean, if you look hard enough at almost every patient, there's some virus there. So there's a bell-shaped curve of, of kind of residual viremia. We're blind to most of that because most of it's below our limit of detection. But I think some people have a, a larger level of kind of leakage. Um, the fact that he's kind of maintained suppression and hasn't had continued rise would, would, would support that. So I, so I probably wouldn't change this person. Um, he's probably someone I would probably keep maybe a little bit more careful eye on than some of my other patients, but but I he, I think I, I definitely wouldn't switch him. Would anybody want to vote for that, Paul? The only thing I would maybe like to do is add something. He's just on 3TC in terms of nukes. Um, I don't know what his resistance history has been. We but don't know. Right. Why isn't he on TAF or a back of ear? Yeah, so that's not a bad option. It's been done a fair amount, and the typical thing is you add, pick your choice, extra new drug, say in this case TAF, um, and it doesn't change a thing I mean, uh, in almost every case. So the reason is why. The, there are two fundamental principles here. The first is that viral load is directly related to the number of cells in the body producing virus at any moment in time. So when somebody has a thousand copies as their set point, there aren't that many cells that are infected and the set point is low because there aren't that many cells in the body at that moment of time, they're infected kicking out virus. They live on average of a day, they get replaced. When the viral load's a million, there's a whole lot more cells that are participating and that are infected at any moment. And when you, when you, when you stop the replication, then the viral load drops as those cells die off and they're not replaced, but they're still more residual, there's more of a reservoir. And so the second point is, is that with antiretroviral therapy, all we are able to do is stop infection from an infected cell to an uninfected cell. The cells that are chronically infected and that are hanging out there, we can't touch. 
right? The immune system long-term may, but that we can't touch with antiretroviral therapy. So you put those two things together, and people typically who have this issue are those who had an initial very high baseline viral load and that by definition have more of a reservoir. And those cells periodically spit out virus, the, the, uninf the infected ones that are just kind of hanging, and that spills over into the bloodstream where it can be um, determined. So increasing your protection of the cells by intensifying or switching to another regimen that works doesn't change anything. You've blocked de novo replication already. And so to add to it or change, isn't but what where do you get concerned is when it starts to go above 200 and it's climbing then you got a problem but this kind of low level viremia is not something that we should really worry about and that's held true for almost two decades now this sort of scenario so are you, can it, before we move on can we talk about that because i think that this is an easy question in the sense that you have very low vi viruses less than 200 but i think that the time to get concerned is when you've got that person that has 250 to 400 and they're not bouncing. and they're That's kind right. of bouncing around and i i find that a difficult situation yeah. in clinic and it's not happening a whole lot but we do see some of that and the question is now we have this this new genotype assay where we can uh test yeah. residual cells i mean are we going to speak i don't know if we're speaking to that today but i think it's worth finding out what people how they're handling that situation so the reference is made to a better genotype that can detect at lower levels, but I, I want to make that distinction that Turner made. It, when it starts to go up to above 200, that implies that there may well be some de novo replication, which implies an adherence problem or a resistance problem. A lot of times it's adherence, but so recheck the adherence, et cetera. But when they're hovering at 100, yeah, yeah, you want to move on. Um, just to say, so that test is the GeneSure archive. It tests the DNA, not the, it sequences DNA, not RNA, so they don't have to have viremia. The problem is it's a, a reliable test. You know, the results can be repeated, but the making clinical changes based on their, that test, there's really not data. Um, it seems to work okay in various small series, but we don't have a lot of data on it. Okay. All right, so now we're going to look at, we mentioned I'll get to the pregnant uh, patient. So this is a woman who comes in newly diagnosed because on her prenatal screening or parent, uh, sorry, because on her uh, pregnancy evaluation, initial uh, evaluation, she's two and a half months pregnant. Her viral load is 28,000, CD4 count 650, B57 negative. Wild type virus wants to start therapy. What are you going to use? And this is more or less the same list that I've given you, except I've added at the bottom atazanavir. You got a couple more protease options. Let's go ahead and vote. Hey, Shakespeare. That's right. I Mike, we may no, need to I check our flow like lab. Everybody seems to have the CD4 count of about 650. It's the same person. This is an obscure. That little journey has no sense about the audience. He makes them feel so dumb. The bastard doesn't care that my Anybody know this one? It's, it, it's called Something Rotten. It was up for Tony at the same time Hamilton was. Forget about it, right? So you fight in here. It's a pretty good play. It'll probably come to Chicago soon. Okay. All right. There are a couple of wrong answers. Um, anybody want to take this on? I, I can walk us through it. Um, so there are no data yet with TAF that shows that it's safe. So right now, we're not really going to pull the trigger on TAF. We're going to stick with TDF. 
FTC and 3TC are okay. A Favarin's is good. It, it, we have lots of safety data now with that. She's, if there was a neural tube problem, we're well past that time point, past eight weeks. Um, so a Favarin's would be good. Um, as of um, five or six months ago, Dalyotegravir was okay. In fact, the guidelines added it to an acceptable alternative. However, as of eight o'clock this morning, Joe Iran wants to give us an update. Yeah, no, um, so uh, in a study in Botswana, um, it actually was presented this summer, if a woman is pregnant and starts dalyotegravir, there doesn't seem to be a problem. But uh, recently, literally within the last week, there are data looking at women who conceived while on dalyotegravir, and there was a higher than expected um, uh, incidence of uh, neural tube defects in infants. It was four out of 426 uh, infants born of mothers who conceived while on dalyotegravir. So there's an FDA alert, the uh, European EMEA alert. Um, uh, so it doesn't exactly apply to this case, but um, uh, there's now a, a warning to clinicians that if a woman is thinking about pregnancy, that, that you would not um, uh, use a dalyotegravir in that setting. Uh, if a woman is um, uh, pregnant and on dalyotegravir, uh, then, then it's a you know a decision based on why are they on dalyotegravir and 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 if if they're already past the first trimester, probably any harm that's been done has already been done. But it's a it's a big deal um, because of the um, uh, WHO and PEPFAR plans of perhaps uh, moving to dalyotegravir as first line across the um, uh, uh, well across the globe basically. And, and whether this kind of information might make that decision a little bit more difficult. Yeah, so that, that sort of changed my answers here a little bit because the messaging I wanted to leave you with was as of five months ago, TAF still in question, but probably ultimate will be okay. Dalyotegravir, at least until this morning or this week, okay, now in question. And the data were 0.1% um, in the control sort of non-dalyotegravir group and 0.9% but the numbers, as you heard, were only 400, so that could change. There were uh, about four out of 426 or something, um, so that turned out to be about uh, that 0.9%. So, um, the, again, the boosted uh, atazanavir, totally okay. Probably not using COBE because that hasn't been worked out, so you want to use ritonavir, darunavir the same way. Um, and so just kind of keep your eye on the guidelines page. Um, this is why the tab just, to, just to say one thing, though, it's always like a risk. Benefit. There's the risk of the infant, but there's also the maternal health. So if you have a drug that works better and is better tolerated, it's more likely to be undetectable, then that really could outweigh some That's of right. the small risks of these Great things. Point. So it's, it's a lot still to be done. Yep. Mike, can we just also interject? Sorry no, that... The, the guidelines would say if you're using an integrase in this situation to do twice daily raltegravir. Yeah. So, so it wasn't an option, so just for those who right. hit the, nine. The, the TAF story is that uh, the levels um, intracellularly, as we know, it's one of the advantages of TAF, are higher um, in the fetus. And the question is, does that, does that increase risk for abnormalities? So far, no, but the data haven't really accumulated enough. For dalyotegravir, it had it's been known that it, it, for sure in animal studies there's no problem. There is a higher placental transfer of dalyotegravir, and that raised the original concern. But after they observed this um, 
for a while in Botswana and elsewhere, they said, okay, let's give it a green light and then wait, put the brakes on uh, because of this recent state. And it really, the uh, EMEA announcement just came out this morning. So I guess it was this afternoon in, in Geneva. And, but, and um, we probably aren't going to have data on Vic Tegravir. Exactly. So it won't be used uh, internationally. Right. So Vic, I wouldn't choose just that because there's even less data on that for obvious reasons. So it's just something to keep your eye on. Like, is, is there a, a in utero test for spina bifida? No, not that I know of. I mean, it happens at, eight, at six to eight weeks, so you might be able to see it on an ultrasound or something. Right. Okay. Should I stop Abacavir? This is a perennial question. I'm just going to show some new data with it. Um, guy who you've treated, 62 years old, went out of care uh, for, with you, moved, and now moved back to your uh, city and comes back to see you. Doing pretty well is on this fixed-dose combination of Abacavir. 3TC Dalutegavir, you can see the numbers there doing pretty well, but he's a smoker. And his past medical history is negative. He's on a, already on a Torvastatin and an aspirin. So what are you gonna do? Continue the therapy, switch to some other regimen, go ahead and choose. going to be a bunch of animals descending on the stage here from the back of the room. Um, so half would continue. It's eh, about right. Tim, you're shaking your head like, eh, not so much. Not so fast, my friend. Um, I, I just think we have the data we have, and we're probably not going to have anything more definitive. So I just, I just, in this person whose risk is what, 10 to 20% over 10 years for a heart attack, I just I would feel uncomfortable continuing them on a back of ear. I just, I don't see a compelling reason to do that rather than switching them to TAP. Okay. Other thoughts? Sure, what do you think? Well, I mean, I, um, so I think the risk with the back of ear, it, it's a very uh, minimal increased risk, but I think that the data suggests that there is a risk there with increasing platelet reactivity. Um, you've got this person on two, um, uh, two agents for prevention and aspirin as well as as a statin already. So um, I, I think that we need to remember that controlling the virus is critical to prevent cardiovascular disease. That's been the biggest risk factor in a number of studies in HIV. Uncontrolled virus uh, is bad. If I were going to switch this person, I actually would consider switching to a TDF regimen um, because TDF actually has some LDL-lowering uh, effect. So I, I would actually consider uh, so the TDF reason, in this situation. The reason I brought it up here is, um, sorry, uh, I didn't have the data slide in there, but there was a study at Croy about platelet function and that Abacavir seemed to have a, neg a detrimental effect on that that could lead to higher aggregation, which be at least could potentially explain. The problem is that none of the studies were evaluated when aspirin was on board or when there were other things. My take home point from this case, I think everyone would agree, the number one, two, three, four, five things that this guy needs to do is to quit smoking. Oh yeah. Right? And the rest of it's dancing on the head of a pin. So we get all exercised about, should we do a Bacavir, should we? Quit smoking and the risk drops 
at least tenfold. And yeah, so that's the thing. All right. So you got this is a common, common problem. Should I switch from a fixed dose combination of Auburn's based stuff? So this is a woman who gets referred to you for evaluation 14 years ago, got started on fixed dose combination, ultimately had the two different tablets, and then got put to the single tablet regimen in 06. She reports no symptoms, her creatinine's fine, she feels well. She's generally pretty happy with what's going on. Anybody have patients like this? Yeah, no, that's why it comes up a lot. So what do you do? Do you continue her therapy? Do you try to get her to change to something? Go ahead and choose. Band of the Opera is there inside your mind. Okay, let's see what the Phantom tells us. Okay, it's another one of those 50-50 kind of deals. Um, Doug, when you're in your clinic with, um, you mentioned this earlier about a Favrins, uh, you would definitely be trying to get her off of that. Is that right? Well, when, once you're on efavirenz and methadone, you're fine, okay. right? So we wouldn't need to change it for that reason. Um, okay. I do worry about drug interactions, and though, so my, I actually chose changing her to the two nukes and integrase inhibitor. Does anybody on the panel want to take the pro or the con? I, I, I just think we need the DEXA scan result because that would be a major reason to switch. Okay. And if the DEXA is okay? Then I would just leave it up to her if she... Yeah. You know, some people just are really uncomfortable switching, and I've kind of forced some people to switch, and it often doesn't go that well. <laughs> See, I told you. I told you I hated that medicine. Put me back. On the other hand, you know, we've all had experiences, too, of taking people off drugs that they think they're tolerating well, and then they say, God, I feel much better. Mm -hmm. So I, she could very well feel better switching off. So you can kind of tell that... This the panel. The point of this is just to kind of air out issues, and if you walk away with nothing more than they don't know any different than I do, that's okay. <laughs> that's kind of the point. So we're all in this together, and in some cases there's definitive right and wrong, and a lot of times there's just shades of gray that are tough. Okay, this is my last question. Oh, there's two more. Sorry. Should I recommend coming off of disability from a fully functioning patient? Anybody get that question? Mm-hmm. All right. So we got a guy who started ARV years ago, wild type virus. He returns to you for care after four years. Uh, he's been through several regimens. He's been on disability since 1999 when he was first diagnosed with advanced AIDS. Now he's fully functional, volunteers at a homeless shelter five days a week. He brings his paperwork in for you to sign off on and confirm his disability. What do you tell him? Happy to fill this out, no problem. Gee, I will, best I can, but I can't lie. I'll fill them out, but I, I really can't support this or some other option. Go ahead and vote. Everybody recognize that? That was rant. Yeah, rant. Okay. All right. 
I, again, I don't know. I can argue this with equipoise either way. Uh, Turner, what do you do here? Well, I try to have a conversation with the, the patient. I mean, um, I, I think it's a challenging um, situation, um, but I, I like the answer that most people agreed with. I mean, try to talk to the person about this. These disability forms, we'll fill them out, but I mean, need to tell the truth. Um, I think this is a big challenge. I mean, we have pa many patients who presented when they were disabled, but now they're fully functional. Um, I think one of the big challenges in the aging epidemic that we haven't really talked about is social isolation. Now, this guy actually is engaged, which is good. Uh, disability facilitates people remaining disengaged and, and actually will contribute to ill health. But it is much like um, the opioid epidemic. It's a very challenging problem to broach, and it's going to, you know, it's going to cause some discord in your clinic. But I think we need to be getting people off disability, so we make that argument. So, so Doug, then Paul. Oh. So I think one of the complicating factors is that we're looking at disability as a binary thing. And so here's somebody who in 99 went on disability. It's been almost 20 years. So this doesn't take into fact what skills does he have, what job opportunities are available. Uh, if we deny the disability and we take it away, what's going to happen? So, so for a lot of my patients, they don't have the skills or the other things, and this is their main way of surviving. And it also provides their health insurance and a number of things that are important and continuing access to medications. Right. So I don't want to lie, so I did number two, GA support it, but I'm not going to lie. Yep. But I do think that you know there are huge social implications for this as well. Yeah, Paul, you were on the National Academy yeah, of Medicine I'm, I'm, uh, panel. Still, for this. I still am. Enlighten us. Enlighten us. <laughs> so um, the doc does not determine disability. SSA determines disability, um, and they might look at what you say. They might go along with what you say, or they might not. They're, they're going to look at the whole patient, the whole record. Um, <laughs> and so, you don't give disability to somebody. You don't take it away, um, no matter what you put on the form. So. I, I would say be honest on the form and let SSA uh, decide whether or not uh, they think the person is disabled. They'll probably leave him on it, I would guess. So in presenting this to audiences at different locations, I've, I've really kind of, my initial reaction was, oh, come on, you know, this guy's working, let him go. But they brought up a couple of interesting points, some of which have already been made is, is the guy really capable of, of going out? The skill sets that maybe kept him gainfully employed in the mid-90s might not be applicable today in computer technology, et cetera. And one, one group said, um, well, wait a minute, what happens to that homeless shelter if he disappears, right? <laughs> so, it, it's, so there's all kinds of considerations. I think Paul's comment is, is the one to keep in mind. But the, the one thing to remember is, I, I think uh, somebody said it, is that what it does get you, the, the amount of money you get with SSI is not that much. It's a less than about 1000 a month. Uh, but it gives you insurance as well. For a lot of people, that's the um, main driver. So, so this is a this insurance, uh, these disability forms for, you know, there were, I mean, they, it might not just be social security, Paul, it might be there, you know, they were employed by IBM before, or, or uh, you know, so those forms come to me too. And, and there's also this kind of uh, level of honesty, right? Like, you know, fatigue, diarrhea, you know, concentration, do you choose to focus on those problems because they exist and, and, um, or, or not? I mean, I, I if, Living in North Carolina, to, to lose your insurance is a big, big deal. Big deal. Um, yep. uh, so, 
very careful about how I felt those forms. It's nice to know that maybe I don't have much say in it, but. Um. So, we, uh, so we have time for one more question. This is a softball down the middle of the plate for, for Doug Bruce. So and we're going to hear about this in the last talk today. So I wanted to set it up. So how do I manage a patient who's on chronic opioid therapy for chronic neck and shoulder pain? Anybody have a patient like that? Uh-huh. Here we go. So this is the same guy, yada, yada, except this time um, he has chronic neck and shoulder pain over five years. He's got some osteophytes and foramen narrowing, but no indication for surgery. Somebody else started him on MS cotton twice a day for over four years ago um, with uh, morphine I, uh, IR for breakthrough. Now he says he needs more because it's just not working anymore and needs a higher dose. And he wants you to write, because he got this from the other doctor who was so much better than me. Um, <laughs> and if you were a good doctor, you'd write it. Um, okay, so would you continue the regimen as is, uh, giving some maybe non-steroidals or something to augment? Increases morphine, reduces morphine, changes regimen to fentanyl patches, uh, go to methadone or some other option. What would you do here? Go ahead and vote. Day. So I told them we'd only have a half day this morning, and they were quite pleased. Until I told them we'd have the other half in the afternoon. Welcome to the wildest weather that you've ever heard of. Where everyone is nicer, but it's never nice above. Welcome to the farthest place you'll get from Disneyland. I have to have full disclosure. One of my, one of my conflicts is that I, I represent the theater district of Broadway. And... Uh, so what we've heard today, this has come from away, which is a fabulous play. Uh, it's it's subtle and really rich and meaningful. Uh, band, we heard from uh, uh, Dear Evan Hansen Hamilton, a lot of good stuff. Okay, Doug, I'm going to let you I'm going to let you take us to the house on this. So what would you say so, in about two minutes? In two minutes, everything you need to know about pain. So gonna, first, there's a IDSA guideline that was published in September. It is on the treatment of chronic non-malignant pain in people living with HIV. The printed version is just the executive summary, but the online version is about 100 pages, and everything you ever needed to know about treating patients like this, including patients with active substance use disorders. So go look it up. So, uh, oh, Okay, so I'm going to talk to you about it later. So number one, opioids are not indicated for back pain. So if this person presented to you, you should not start the person on opioids, okay? Now, in this situation, as someone just yelled, it's too late. I inherited this, right? This is the fellow's ever nightmare. Why did it get started? I don't know. So the thing to remember is once you write a prescription, the DEA considers that you agree with whatever reason started it. So you can't ever say to the DEA, I just did it because he did it, right? That's not an excuse, right? So what do you do in this situation? Morphine's metabolized to what? Doesn't matter. So, uh, <laughs> so when you do a urine tox, you cannot distinguish between, unless you do a special six acetamorphine, you can't distinguish between heroin and morphine. So we don't use morphine in our clinic environment because our patients use synthetic opioids and use heroin. So that's a big liability here. The patient does need more probably because why? You develop tolerance over time. And so just because the patient says I need more, it doesn't mean that the patient's a drug user seeking more drugs or trying to sell them or divert them. It could mean that really my pain's not under control. So what I would do in this situation, I would use methadone. 
Methadone can be prescribed off-label for the treatment of chronic pain. It is a very long half-life. It needs to be dosed three to four times a day. And you can put this person on a very structured taper over a protracted period of time. Right? So good tapers aren't fast. Good tapers are, and depending on the dose, could be up to a year in this patient. And the big thing this patient's going to need is cognitive behavioral therapy or some other form of therapy, potentially SSRIs or other treatments for depression, which tends to be very common in the setting and a lot of support. Yeah. The physical therapy is key. I mean, for back pain especially. So it depends on what's causing the back pain. Physical therapy can be helpful. There are also other things that can be very helpful. There's data on yoga, acupuncture, mindfulness therapy. There's a lot of things, again, see the guideline. There's a lot of data. One quick question, Doug. Um, You just, in the same breath, said morphine, uh, not morphine, uh, methadone has a long half-life. It's dosed three to four times a day. Yeah, so, sorry. So... The reason I said that is the drug stays in your system very long. There are differences between, um, so the trough is good for opioid use disorders. We do once daily methadone for the treatment of an opioid use disorder. The peak in your PK is what's needed for analgesia. So the, the nice thing about the fact that it, when you hit the peak, you get your maximal effect relative to pain control. But the drug is around longer, so your peaks and troughs are lower, and you feel better longer. So when you're taking immediate release morphine, you feel really good, then you feel really bad. It's the same curve as heroin. You feel really good, and then you feel really bad. And so what we're trying to do is what makes a drug more abusable is this peak. It's the reason that Xanax is more likely to be abused than Librium, right? If you feel really good really fast, and then it's gone really fast, you want more. And so that's why IR morphine is particularly bad in this patient because it's very reinforcing, goes very, really quickly, and doesn't solve your problem. You want something that's going to be sticking around longer. In a patient on chronic methadone, that methadone urine tox will still be positive a month to two months out. So, so it sticks around a long time. We're going to hear really great detail at the last talk, so really worth hanging around for. It's, it's a really great talk. So we have about 10 minutes or so for questions. You guys have been sending up. I'm going to read these off to the panel, let them comment. The first one is about persistent viremia now in the 400 to 1,000 range. So you can picture the case of a person with a CD4 count of around 500, but the viral load's been hovering between four and 600 repeatedly. Um, tried to get a, uh, the previous genotype was wild type, uh, new genotype couldn't be done because of what a virus present. So would you switch them? Would you get the DNA test? Uh, Tim, you alluded to that earlier. What would you do here? Um, well, at a viremia of around 500, you really should be able to get the, the standard genotype. But assuming you couldn't, I would order the DNA test because it's very expensive. But if you think about the expense of an augmented regimen, like adding like four drug regimen, I mean, it, it would dwarf the cost of the test pretty quickly. So I would get a DNA test. Okay. And then adjust, but you would tr- look to change the regimen. Yes. Yeah. Based on that. Turner, here's a question about um, kind of combines two cases that we had. Somebody who's got that low level of viremia of say 40 to 80 uh, persistently, uh, but then what's your messaging to them about transmission of the U equals U? undetectable equals untransmissible. He's got detectable, but not high level. I, mean, I think the, the message stays, uh, stays very similar uh, with regard to that, for that patient who has very low virus. It's like Joe said, they probably have a bigger 
um, reservoir, I probably have a, uh, a you know greater concern for them uh, about what their relationship status is. I mean, are they you know are they in a monogamous relationship? That may be the situation where I would encourage to a greater extent that their partner consider prep. Not necessarily that it's going to be more effective, but it it will give them uh, you know greater security in that situation. Right. Some of the data out of Uganda back in 2000 began to give us hints about this. It was Tom Quinn's study in near Rakai where they had uh, discordant couples, one positive, one negative, divided the viral loads in the seropositive partner into quintiles. And the lowest one, lowest fifth, was a thousand or less. And over a period of time, there was no transmissions. Now, does that mean there won't be in this setting? No. Uh, but I, I would think it's unlikely. Uh, maybe not virtually zero, but almost virtually zero. And so, I, you know, I think it's a judgment call and it's a great question uh, for which I'm not sure we'll ever have mm -hmm. full data on beyond what we can estimate now. Um, another question, we still aim for three, do we still aim for three fully active agents when initiating therapy? Um, is that just yesterday's dogma? And as we all know, there's a thin line difference between what's dogma and what's dog manure. So has we, have we gone to dog manure? Joe, what do you think? Yeah, well, I, I think that um, most of our guidelines still support three fully active drugs. I think when the, um, I think there's now pretty broad evidence that you could use a boosted PI plus 3TC as initial therapy from uh, at least uh, two different studies. Um, but that, I don't think that gives you much of an advantage. If you look at those studies, the tolerability is about the same. So you're, you're not, you're just, I guess, gaining the advantage of not having as many drugs and maybe cost. Um, I think the Gemini studies of, of Dalyutegvir 3TC will, will, I think, address that question about two fully active drugs that we might want to use together um, as initial therapy. I think one place where three fully active drugs doesn't apply is second line therapy. I think there's very good data that if you have uh, two and a half fully active drugs, so recycled nucleosides plus either a boosted PI or, or an integrase is, is adequate. So I, I don't think it, as second line you need to kind of add another drug like Maraviroc or Ropivirine or Etrovirine. Uh, I think that just makes things complicated and less successful. I just want to clarify one thing. When you say an integrase in that situation, you mean big tegger beer or dolly tegger yep. beer? Yes, right, Not, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So it's a moving target, but I think we are headed towards the two. And uh, so what we used to say was uh, correct back then. It's not that it's wrong now, but it may not be totally necessary. Um, if someone doesn't have insurance, how do you get their meds right away? Uh, so someone's in the ER and you got to call in the social worker paratroopers. What are you going to do? Um, in New York, uh, what they've done at the Department of Health is they will provide a period of medications until the insurance can be obtained. And so that's in a state that has a pretty broad public assistance program. And does so, that extend to Alabama? Yeah. <laughs> no? But I will but, just say that the we... migration from the South to the New York <laughs> is something that's been understudied. Yeah, it's true. And it, trust me, there are times when I say you really would be better off living in another state. I'm not kidding. That's... But we do counsel people that, oh, 
they want to move for uh, cheaper cost of living. And it's like, you need to work all of your insurance out yeah. ahead yeah. of time. Yeah. Don't expect it's going to be there. So it depends, again, the, the angels and the details where you live matters and what your situation is will determine. You know, um, one, one thing I, 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 that we don't talk about very much, but probably we should, is people that are 66 or 65 and going from whatever insurance they have to Medicare. I, that, that's happening really common now in my clinic. People are making bad choices about their insurance because of the medication coverage with Medicare Part D. And if you, again, live in a state where there aren't as many um, safety nets, um, it, it's, uh, maybe here it's great, it's not a problem, but boy, North, North Carolina's a big problem if you choose the wrong plan. Right. So we, we should talk about this maybe at some point because uh, a lot of our patients are crossing that threshold. Right. Uh, one of the questions uh, we sort of answered, but I'll reiterate the answer was, what do you do if you're going to start right now? What are the What's the choice? And uh, what we talked about was using either a Dalutegravir or Bictegravir-based regimen with a TAF FTC or something like that. Um, there was a question asked about a screening test for neural tube um, uh, defect. Uh, in addition to ultrasound, is there any serologic testing that we'd have? I, I don't. I'd have to ask an obstetrician to be honest. I don't. Mm -hmm. I, I see. Mark, the second trimester Prospectively, right? What's the test? Do you know? Oh, it's just a genetic workup. I don't know if everybody heard that, but there's ways to. I was just wondering whether if if the woman, you know, if 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 you're worried and you, you can screen for it, and if you choose to uh, terminate the pregnancy, I I, I don't. Second trimester, though, is yeah. when they do the um, maternal screen during the pregnancy. And just to say, if internationally, if it's a PEPFAR funded program, there's no way that discussion is going to happen because they'll lose all their funding. Right. So, Doug, a quick follow-up for you. Does it matter if the chronic pain is due to one of our private medicines like D4T, DDI, and they have peripheral neuropathy? Does it matter what the cause is? Uh, so, there is no really good treatment for peripheral neuropathy due to HIV or HIV medications. There is very good treatment for diabetic peripheral neuropathy, which the standard of care is gabapentin. There is some data in HIV settings, but the data took the gabapentin dose up to 2,600 milligrams, which the main finding was that people got tired. <laughs> <laughs> there is some data. Yeah, there, the sleep did improve. That was an outcome. <laughs> there is data on a capsaicin patch of 8%, yeah. uh, which is actually very difficult to obtain and is very painful when applied. You had to put lidocaine on the leg, apply the patch, but it provided 12 weeks of ongoing relief from one application. So, and then there's also data in cannabis, but the data is somewhat biased because it only enrolled people who already found cannabis to be beneficial. <laughs> And if you're the one who's applying the capsation, just make sure you don't touch your eye. That would be, that would be a bad idea. Um, we've kept two quick things. One's a little complicated, but it's basically a, a third trimester pregnant woman who tests um, uh, with both the antigen, uh, HIV antigen screen antibody negative, but somehow got a PCR that was 31, and then a repeat was 100, and... Um, 
that four months into treatment, uh, it's still negative. So I, maybe that's too convoluted a little bit because it's exceptional in a way. But does anybody have an opinion of what to do about some degree of low-level HIV viremia? I mean, very low level. My sense is it's an assay issue. Um, and and it, it would be, maybe do a DNA test of the, of the mom uh, to see if there's actual integrated virus, which would kind of be the referee. If that's negative, then you can feel pretty good. And the last question is, how do you assess adherence? What's your best way to know besides a negative viral load? How do you know if somebody's taken their medicine? Tim? Well, I guess if they have a negative viral load, I guess yeah. I don't really care otherwise. But um, <laughs> it, it's uh, yeah. um, it, more common they have some detectable and you're trying to assess adherence. Through our EMR, I look for drug dispensations to make sure that they're actually picking it up because if they're not picking it up, then you could be very assured that they're not taking the medications. And then just self-report and you try to start the conversation uh, kind of non-judgmentally. You know, tell me about your pill taking. How are you doing with your pill taking? Something like that. Yeah. Any other suggestions, thoughts? That's pretty good. I, I really like the pickup. That that tells you what you really need to know. It's pretty objective. Well, thanks for hanging in there with us for the last hour and fifteen minutes. And uh, thanks for coming off. So, box lunch time. It's, it's box lunch time and then keeping up with the uh, So, we are looking at the time to come back. The time to come back. Yeah. Yeah, we're all. Yeah, it's good. So I worry about the reason that the two stays, but the three bars. Yes. The reason that the two stays, but the three bars. Yes. 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 Yes.